Good evening, church. Grace and peace to you all. Please open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul's letter to the Galatians will be in chapter 5 this evening. We'll be looking at verses 13 to 18. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. And the title of my sermon this evening, for any note-takers out there, is Freedom in the Spirit. Freedom in the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 13 to 18. Once you find your places in your Bibles, loved ones, please stand with me for the public reading of Scripture. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this evening. Galatians 5, 13 to 18, freedom in the Spirit. This is the Word of God, church. Starting here in Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul the Apostle writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the word of God, church. Let's go before him in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have given us just the grace, the gift to gather to gather again, Lord, this Lord's day to sing songs of praise to you, to open up your word, to, to, to be instructed in how you want us to imitate you, Lord, by knowing more about you. Um, cultivating our affections so that we may love you more, so that, God, we may live for you, Lord. God, I just pray that regardless of all the circumstances that my brothers and sisters are going through in life, that, Lord, it will be your word that will reinvigorate their souls, that it will satisfy them, it will refresh them, Lord, so that, God, they not only meet you in your word today, but they ultimately become more like you, King Jesus. And so, Lord, I just pray that for the sake of my brothers and sisters this evening. I pray for any guests or visitors or anyone listening online who doesn't believe in your word, that, Lord, that they will just encounter you, Lord, in your word, that they will be convicted by um, of their sinning against you, and that God, they'll just place their faith in you, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, because apart from you, um, they are perished. And so, Lord, we pray for them as well. And just for myself as well, Lord, that God, it will be your word going to your people, that it will feed them, it will nourish them, correct them, and exhort them where it need be, Lord. But ultimately, Lord, again, to help sanctify them, Lord, to become more like your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we pray for these things, and we pray that you just be with us right now um, as, we, as we enter your word right now. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the grace that we have to gather today. And Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. You may be seated, church. Let me begin by quoting a thought-provoking paragraph from the late American thinker Francis Schaeffer. This is what he writes here. He says, The central problem of our age is not liberalism or modernism, nor the old Roman Catholicism or the new Roman Catholicism, nor the threat of communism or even the threat of rationalism and the monolithic consensus that surrounds us, nor, some would add today, postmodernism, materialistic consumerism, or visceral sensualism. All these are dangerous, but not the primary threat. The real problem is this. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, individually or corporately, tending to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than of the spirit. The central problem is always in the midst of the people of God, not in the circumstances surrounding them. Now, I know most of you probably don't know what all those isms mean, 
But my point is, is that despite all the various threats that exist outside the church, and there are plenty, right? The most dangerous threats are those that exist inside the church. And perhaps the greatest problem in the church today is when the people of God do the Lord's work by their own power and wisdom in the flesh, trusting in themselves instead of the power and wisdom of God. And I bring this to your attention, loved ones, because you must be aware of this daily temptation, the daily temptation to trust in yourself, your own strength, your own knowledge, instead of God himself by faith. Because if not, you run the risk of trusting in yourself as a false god, as an idol, instead of the one and true God of the Bible. Perhaps this is something that maybe SWCC is doing corporately, not saying that we are, but something that we should think about. Maybe this is something that you're doing individually as you sit in the pews or anyone listening online as you live your lives, especially if you're currently not walking with God by faith as an unbeliever. You choose not to follow Christ. Wherever you may be at right now, the church, God's people, the church has been called out of the world by God as a witness to the world for God. That's what the church is. And the greatest witness, according to Jesus himself, is the church's genuine love for one another. It's how we treat one another um, in love. Not only is this proof that you have experienced the love that God first shows you through the gospel, but it serves as a witness to your neighbor that the Father has sent the Son by the Spirit to redeem a people from all the nations back to himself. The only problem is you cannot love this way by resting in your own power and wisdom. As a matter of fact, this actually leads me to the point of tonight's passage in Galatians 5, 13 to 18, which is this. You can only love your neighbor with the power of the Spirit. That's the point that we're going to see tonight. You can only love your neighbor by the power of the Spirit. But why? Why is this the case? And Paul's going to give two reasons to defend his point here. The first reason is that the purpose of salvation for you at least, is to love as Christ loved you. The purpose of salvation is to love as Christ loved you, and we will see that in verses 13 to 15. And the second reason is that the power to love like Christ is only by the Spirit. The power to love Christ is only by the Spirit, as we'll see in verses 16 to 18. So with all that in mind, let's begin with the first reason. The purpose of salvation is to love as Christ loved you. So look at your Bibles, loved ones. In Galatians 5, verse 13, Paul begins our passage of Scripture tonight by saying, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so Paul begins by saying to these Galatian Christians that they are called to freedom. But what, what is this freedom? What is this freedom of the Christian? And we got to remember a couple of things as we, as we um, arrive at the end of Paul's letter to the Galatians. First, we got to recall, why does Paul even write this letter in the first place? What is the problem happening at Galatia? And the problem was, you had these Jewish Christians, or I've been calling them Judaizers, they arrived at these churches in Galatia, and they were preaching a false gospel. What was their false gospel? They were saying to these Galatian Christians who were non-Jews that they need to be Jewish to be saved, that they need to do good works of the law. They need to be circumcised. They need to keep the, the Jewish feasts in order to be saved by God. In order to be God's covenant people, they have to do these things because if not, they will not be included among God's people for salvation. This is kind of what Paul is getting at when he read at the beginning of the letter in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. 
He says here to the Galatians, I'm astonished. I am shocked that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he continues in verse 7, not that there is another, another gospel, but there are some who trouble you who want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is the problem happening here in Galatians. So what does Paul do? He is reminding the Galatians what the gospel is all about. What is the gospel that saves? What is the gospel that we proclaim as Christians? And what is the gospel that as Christ's followers, you and I, loved ones, are called to live by? He says in Galatians 5.1, this, for freedom. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so we go back to that phrase, freedom. Freedom. Freedom from what? Christ has set Christians. If you believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, he has set you free from what? From your slavery to sin. He has set you free from reaping the curse of God's law, eternal death in hell. Why? Not because of your good works, not because of your performance in life, but because of what Christ has done for you on the cross, that if you repent of your sins, believe in him by faith alone, you are justified or you are declared right by God. Although you were guilty of your sinning against the Holy Creator God, because of what Christ has done for you on the cross, he cleanses you of your sin. He, you're no longer an enemy of God, but you're adopted into his family. And as a result, you are born again. You are declared innocent. And as a result, because you are a child of the living God, now you're able to live for God by faith um, from there on. That's why Paul says here to stand firm. Stand firm and never submit again to a yoke of slavery and sin. Since Christ has died as a sinless substitute on the cross for all who believe in him by faith, brothers and sisters, there is no more condemnation in Christ, right? You're no longer an enemy. You are an adopted child of the living God. And as a result, you're adopted into God's multi-ethnic family, inheriting those promises of eternal life that God first gave to that man of faith, who, or who we know him by, Abraham. Therefore, loved ones, I, just, we, I, I start with this because if you have repented of your sin against God and placed your faith in Christ alone, you are saved. Stand firm in that reality. Never forget that promise. Remind yourself of it each and every single day. No matter how many times we may fall short daily, you are no longer an enemy of God because of your faith in Jesus. You are a child, rather, of the living God, being transformed to know him, to love him, to obey him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the goodness of the gospel. That is the hope that we have as Christians. That is the good news that we proclaim. And this is the good news that we each and every single day strive to live by until we meet our Savior in heaven one day. However, just because you are saved by faith in Christ alone, it doesn't mean that you have the freedom to live whoever you want, right? As a matter of fact, Paul explains in the next verse, in light of this goodness of the gospel, there is a way that you are called to live in light of it, loved ones. You are called to live in light of the freedom that you have in Christ through the gospel in a specific way. And this is important because the freedom that you have in Christ, it's going to ground. It's really the foundation to how you should apply the rest of what Paul is going to say tonight. In other words, what you do for God 
always rests on your relationship with God. It's never the other way around. Every other world religion gets it confused. They, they, they think that, all right, it's, it's what I do that, makes, that gives me favor before God. No, because you're declared right before God by your faith in Jesus, that's where you start off with. You're adopted into his family, and it's your identity in Jesus now that grounds, all right, because I believe in Jesus, I've been born again, now I'm able to live for God. So just keep this freedom of the Christian because of the gospel, because of the hope that you have, this is the, the reality that you want to start off with as we start talking about how do we live in light of the gospel then. So with this in mind, then look at what he says again in verse 13, moving on. He says, only when it comes to this freedom, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And so although Paul says that God has called the Galatians and Christians throughout history for that matter to freedom, he qualifies this freedom. In other words, he's limiting this freedom. He says to only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But that now begs the question, what does Paul mean by the flesh? It's a phrase used all over the Old Testament. And Paul uses it in various different ways throughout his letter to the Galatians. But it's always the context that gives us the evidence of what does he mean here. And so when we look at our passage tonight here in Galatians chapter 5, when he's talking about the flesh, he has in mind this. The totally depraved nature of a human being, both physically and spiritually. Let me repeat that. The totally depraved nature of a human being, both physically and spiritually. That's what Paul's getting at when, he, when he's using this word flesh throughout this passage. It doesn't mean that humans are as wicked as they can be, right? The Bible actually teaches us that God actually restricts that from happening as an act of sheer grace, because if not, all hell will be broken loose. Yet, it does mean that the totality of a human being is tainted by the effects of sin. Our bodies, our minds, our souls, everything. Everything about us is fallen. As one commentator summarizes this reality, he says that the flesh is what man has made himself in contrast with man as God made him. The flesh is man as he has allowed himself to become in contrast with man as God made him to be. Or in other words, the flesh is man as he is apart from Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the flesh is the sin nature that brings not only physical death upon us all, but spiritual death upon every human being the moment we are first conceived into this world. But God didn't make humanity that way, right? God made humanity good in his image so that they can find life, joy, and satisfaction in him alone. But because of sin, because of our innate desire to rebel against God, to make gods of ourselves, this path only leads to death. And so when Paul says that Christians, or in this case the Galatians, are not to use their freedom in Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, he's really getting at don't use your opportunity as an opportunity to sin. Because if you do that, if you say, oh, I believe in Christ as Savior, but I'm going to live whoever I want, that is not a heart that is truly repentant. That is not a heart that truly understands the depths of the gospel. Because really, it demonstrates a heart that takes God's love through the gospel for granted. It's cheap grace. It demonstrates a heart serving your own personal sinful desires instead of resting in God's love that ultimately satisfies and changes your life to become more like Jesus. That's why our culture's pursuit of this idea of personal freedom, personal autonomy, it's a myth. It's, it's unachievable because at the end of the day, everyone is enslaved to something, right? 
everyone is enslaved to something, or in other words, you will serve what you love most in this life. As the Danish philosopher Søren Kierkegaard observes in his book Sickness Unto Death, he says, it is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. In other words, humanity attempts, and we all do this, loved ones, even even as Christians, if we're not careful, humanity attempts to build an identity by freely being true to themselves. However, it fails to realize that identity is designed by God. God designed our identity to be, a, to be built around himself in Christ-like holiness, in pursuing him. We were created to imitate God. That's what brings true satisfaction in life, and our hearts are restless until we do so. That's why people all around us, maybe your friends and family, they always feel broken and empty when they place their identity and so forth, say in their career, their education, family, relationships, money, or today, sexual identity, or anything else under the sun. Doesn't mean that all that stuff is bad, but when you place your ultimate identity in things besides God, it will always lead to brokenness, emptiness, and ultimately eternal death. Rather, humanity is made for God. We were made to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. As Psalm 73, verse 25 to 26 reminds us, the psalmist writes, Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's what the scripture teaches us. And yet this innate desire in all of us to find identity in something else besides God, like I said earlier, it's always going to lead for brokenness. We were made to find our identity in the image that we were made in, and that is the God of the Bible. This is why God demonstrates his love for the world by sending his son to die for his people from all the nations, so that God would restore your identity, your broken identity, broken by sin, back to himself. And so this then leads us then to really, well, what's the remedy then? If this is our innate desire to, to do whatever seems right in our own eyes, how do we put this off? Well, it's not by putting it off and ignoring it. You've got to replace it with something better. You've got to replace it with something greater, a greater love. And, 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 it's, and it's this greater love that Paul starts to indicate in the next verse. And so look at what he says again in verse 13. He says, regarding using your freedom, don't use it for sin, but, but through love serve one another. Instead of serving yourself, in love, serve one another. Now, this statement, serve one another in love, it's actually a command. In other words, for you, Christian, my brother and sister, this is not an option. You have to love your neighbor. You have to serve one another. But why does Paul say this? What ultimately leads him to say this? Well, first, in the Consuls of Galatians again, both Paul and the Judaizers are in this big debate, right? Are we saved by works? Are we saved by faith? They both agree that there is an obligation of how we ought to live as Christians. There is an ethical obligation of how we are called to fulfill the law of Christ here. The disagreement, however, is that on one side you have the Judaizers. They believe that, well, in order to fulfill it, you have to obey it in the power of the flesh, while Paul on the other side says, no, it's through love of serving others. And as we'll see eventually, it's only by the power of the Spirit that we can do that. But what does that matter? Why does that distinction really matter? Is it just a theological tertiary issue? Like, ah, John, you're just, you're just, you're pulling, pulling hairs here, John. No, this matters because it is a gospel-centered issue. 
And it's with that in mind, consider the gospel with me again. Consider the gospel message itself. Paul summarizes really his message of the letter to the Galatians here in one verse, and it's a verse quite worth memorizing, loved ones. It's what he says in Galatians 2.20. Famous passage, maybe some of you haven't memorized. This is really Paul's message in a nutshell here in his verse to the Galatians. He says to the Galatians, I have been crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so the life I now live in the flesh, that is this broken and fallen world, how does he live? He lives by faith in the Son of God who what? Loved him and gave himself for him. So Paul's explaining how does the gospel transform his life, but the reason why I mention that, because when it comes to the gospel of God redeeming a people back to himself, why does God do that at all? Not because he had to, not because he was obligated to save us. If anything, we deserve nothing but eternal damnation and hell because of our cosmic treason against God. So why did God save us? Why did he save anyone at all? The end of that passage, the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Christ gave himself on the cross for you, loved ones. Why? Because he ultimately loved you. As Paul says elsewhere to the Romans, he says, God first shows his love to us that although we were sinners, Christ died for you. This is the love of God. And that's important for, for this matter because it's, it's, it's because of the love that God first shows to you and you, you repent of your sins, you believe, and now you're able to live for Christ. Your old man is dead, you're crucified, now you're able to live for Jesus. How does this th- therefore cause us to live? Well, we're called to love. We're called to love God and others just as God has first loved us. Paul mentions this earlier in, in chapter 5 of Galatians, if I may quote this as well. In Galatians, Galatians 5, 5 to 6, he says this. He says, For through the Spirit, for through the Spirit, again, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So again, it's by faith, right? This is how we live. And because of our faith in Jesus, being born again by the Spirit, we were called to love God and others. Doesn't matter if you're circumcised, a Jew. Doesn't matter if you're uncircumcised, a Gentile like myself, a non-Jew. What does matter is by faith, do you love? By the Spirit, have you been born again? Do you follow Jesus? And one way that you're going to know if you truly follow Jesus is your life afterwards. Or as Paul's focusing on here is because of the freedom you have in Christ, do you love one another? Do you serve others in love. And the reason why this is so revolutionary, it's like, all right, John, what are you getting at? Let me quote something that, um, there, there's, there's one individual that in light of this, what Paul is getting at here, it's, it's so revolutionary. The freedom that we have in Christ, right? Because think about what Paul is getting at here. The reason why he's reminding the Galatians of the gospel, again, because you have these Judaizers, they're trying to do everything that God commands them by their own strength. We think that we can save ourselves by our own good works, but it doesn't cut it. Because if you're going to try to do that, God's standard is 100%. But because we know that no one can keep God's law perfectly, the only consequence is eternal death. And so what is, so what is the remedy? It's faith, right? But therefore, why does that matter? Consider what the German theologian, Martin Luther, this is, he says this in one of his most famous treatises. This was actually the bedrock of the Reformation movement. I'm going to share two phrases, and it really captures really the full scale of the, of the words that Paul is giving to us tonight. 
really the revolutionary ethic of what does it mean to be kingdom citizens of our creator God. Martin Luther says this, that a Christian, you and I loved ones, a Christian is a free lord of everything and subject to no one. And then he says, paradoxically, a Christian is a willing servant of everything and subject to everyone. So on one hand, Christians are free. We're free from sin. We're free from the curse of the law because of what Christ has done for us. But on the other hand, we're obligated to serve one another. And what Luther observes here, based on what Paul is getting at, is that you have been set free, loved ones, so that you may serve one another in love. That's what Paul is getting at. That's what Luther helps us understand, is because you've been set free from your bondage to sin through the gospel, how are you called to live now? Well, not by taking that grace for granted and living whoever you want. No. The fruit that showcases that you do understand the gospel is if you love one another. And think about this. The person who is, who's still under the law trying to save themselves, they're, if they do love other people, it's because they have to. Oh, I need to love my neighbor because I needed to do it to be saved. Every religion does that. Yeah, just because there's maybe good moral people out there, if they don't know Christ, I can guarantee it, they're doing it for their own benefit or trying to do like, oh, I need to be a good person, so I need to love my neighbor, although I don't want to. The difference is with the Christian, you have been set free from the law, from, from, the, from the curse of the law, so that when it comes to you loving others, you don't do it because you have to, you do it because you want to. Because Christ has first loved you, loved ones, by dying on the cross for your sins, you are now set free from your bondage to sin so that now you're freed up to serve each other in love. Imitating God in his love and ultimately loving your neighbor by showcasing the love to a broken and fallen world so that they can be reconciled to a, to a loving creator God um, so that they can find eternal life in him. And so my question then in light of that then is do you think about your freedom in Christ in light of those terms? Do you, think, do you ever think about, man, I have been set free from my bondage to sin so that I can serve others, not because I have to or because God tells me to, but because I want to, because God has first loved me. I want to love others. I want to take people's physical needs seriously. I want to take people's greatest needs spiritually to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with my coworkers, with my family, with my neighbors, all these different things. It's because of the love that God first shows to you that this is really the, the reason why we love anyone at all. Because apart from that, there's really no reason why we ought to at all. And to really prove this, right, to prove all of this, loved ones, why we even ought to love at all, Paul grounds this reality, this reality with a command. And he's actually going to quote from a very famous Old Testament command, um, which maybe some of you have memorized. It's from Leviticus 19.18. Or it's the passage that talks about love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor. Look at what he says in Galatians 5.14. He says this, that in light of your obligation to serve one another because of the freedom you have in Jesus, he says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And what I just have to say here is that what Paul is doing here is extremely interesting. Hopefully this, this gives some insight just how Paul just really understand scripture so that we can better apply it to our life. But we have to ask a question now. What does Paul mean that the whole law is fulfilled in one word? Or in the Greek, it could be commandment. And he's referring to Leviticus 19.18. Is Paul saying that Leviticus 19.18, to love your neighbor, does that replace the whole law as fulfilled in Christ? Many Christians throughout church history have thought so, starting with the church fathers and all the way forward, 
And yet, I'm not sure if that's the case. Does it mean that Leviticus 19.18 is merely a summary of the whole law itself? Is that, all right, you got all these laws, all these rules that God says in his word, but it's just all about love, man. Just, just reduce it to that. Is it just that? I don't think so either. And again, there's there, this idea of, you know, how does the law apply to the Christian? It's a big thing that's being debated now. It's a can of worms. I'm not going to open up right now because that's not the point of what Paul's getting at here. And what I'm about to say is, is that, I'm not just disagreeing with a lot of my brothers and sisters in church history, not because I think I know better than them, because I don't. I depend upon them to help me understand the scriptures. We do theology and community. However, the one thing that I think the church has failed at times is to really deeply understand the Jewish roots of our faith, how our faith is indeed Jewish. And I appreciate Pastor Steve always encouraging me to consider that all the time, because I think it's a, it, once we understand the, the worldview and the context of the, of, of the Jewish world in which the New Testament writers wrote their stuff, then we'll be able to better understand the message at times of what they're trying to communicate. And I think this part in Scripture really helps us understand when we consider the Jewish context here. And so, with that in mind, what is Paul getting at here when he uses that word fulfilled? Because that is key to understand what Paul is getting at here. What does he mean by that word fulfilled? And in Paul's day... It was, a, it was an idiom. It was a very technical term that rabbis would use all the time. And when I bring up the word fulfill, I need to bring up another word just to kind of help understand what Paul is getting at here. I'm going to talk about the word fulfill and the word abolish. What do these words mean? Because rabbis and Paul's, they use these all the time. Well, when they would use the word fulfill, they would use it in this way. If you rightly interpret God's word and rightly apply it to your life, you have fulfilled God's law. That's how, they'll, that's how they'll basically use that term. But in contrast, how would the word abolish? If you misinterpret God's word, therefore leading to misapplying it, you are abolishing God's law. That's how they would use those two terms. And what's interesting to kind of build upon that, how Paul is quoting Leviticus 19.18, he's actually using a common method of how, how the Jews would interpret the scriptures. What do I mean by that? So take this general command to love your neighbor. The general command Paul is using this as the guiding principle of how you should interpret the rest of God's commands. It's not replacing it. It's not a mere summary. But it is a guide of, in order to obey God's word and all that it says, make sure that you use this as a guiding principle of loving your neighbor, of love itself. And this is something that Paul actually does a, a few times in the New Testament. Most famously, he, he, he uses this in Romans 13, 8-10. I'm going to quote it to kind of illustrate it, but really see what Paul is doing here. He has in mind this general command to love neighbor, but notice how he's applying this as a general principle of why you should obey some of these other particular commands. Let me read it. He, he says this in Romans 13, 8 to 10. He writes, Owe no one anything. And this is in, in light of how Christians should relate to um, governing authorities. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, and here are some particular commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. And what does he quote? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So when it comes to the Galatians, and a lot of all the controversy, when it comes to us, how we should love loved ones, it should be to serve one another in love. And this was also a very common assumption among some of the most famous rabbis in Paul's day. I'll quote three. 
One of them was a guy named Rabbi Hillel. He was actually the teacher of Paul's teacher, Gabaliel. That guy is mentioned in the New Testament. He writes this, that what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole law. While the rest is the commentary thereof, go and learn it. Again, Leviticus 19, love neighbors. It's this guiding principle of how we should apply the rest of God's word. Or consider another rabbi, Rabbi Akiva. He says something very similar that Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor, it's the great principle of the law. But most importantly, consider this last rabbi, Rabbi Jesus. Jesus makes a similar claim in response to a question that a Pharisee asks him. That is a Jewish religious leader of that time. He, he asks him in Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, this Pharisee asks, teacher or rabbi, asking Jesus, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And the second is like it. And he quotes from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend upon these two commands. Or in other words, the law and the prophets is just a, a Jewish way of saying the Old Testament or for us would be both the Old and the New Testaments, all of God's word. And so keep that in mind. Love of God, love of neighbor, these are the two great principles to interpret the rest of God's commands in the life of the Christian. So what's Paul's point? Why do I bring that all up? Because the essence of Christian teaching and living is to imitate the God who is love. The essence of Christian teaching, if you want to summarize it all, the essence of Christian teaching and living is to imitate the creator God who is love in himself. Because this is a love that is grounded in who God is. It's a love experienced through the selfless action of God loving the world in this way. That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's not love as a mere emotional feeling that comes and goes. It is a love set forth in action. It is a love that is cultivated in you, loved ones, by a growing knowledge of God through the continual study of his word. It is a love of depending upon him for your physical and spiritual necessities through prayer. It's a love manifesting itself as a commitment to God's people, a commitment to the church. Truly, you cannot love in this way unless you first realize you cannot love. Because you can only love when you experience the love of God that he first shows you through the gospel. So, if you love your neighbor, it is a reflection that you love God. And if you love God, it's only because he first loved you through the gospel. And so, loved ones, is this mark of love evident in your lives? Do you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And I'm not asking if you're perfect. I'm just asking that in light of all that you experience in life, do you truly love God? Do you want to know God more each and every single day? Do you want to share the good news of the gospel, what God has done for you with your neighbor? Do you want to raise your children and share this with your family and coworkers of, 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 of the wonderful things that God has done and has recorded to us in his word? Or is something else competing for your affections? Do you love your neighbors yourself by not only taking their physical needs seriously, but their greatest needs spiritually to tell them the gospel, to know Christ, to be born again? Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, loved ones, that you actually pray for them when you say you will, that you reach out to them out of concern for their physical and spiritual well-being, and just take time just to do life together, get together, and to stir each other to love and good works? 
Does the world see Christ in you as you love God and others with your life? These are questions that I think are helpful for us to reflect upon. In light of what God has done for me, what am I doing? Not because I have to, but because I want to. Because of the love that God has shown me, I want to love him by showcasing this love to others. And just to put myself under the bus, I have much to grow in this myself. And, and, and the reason why I can say that with confidence is because that is part of growing as a disciple of Jesus. That is part of growing in Christ's likeness as a follower of Jesus, learning more about God and deepening my love of him, which, which will only grow my love of others. And we do that not because we're God's family or because we have to, but as Francis Schaeffer once said again, the church, you and I, loved ones, we are to be a loving church to a dying culture. Our culture is dying because they believe in the lies of this age. We have the truth that can set them free, and it's the good news of the gospel that God showcases his love that he gave his son to die for all who would believe in him. And so, loved ones, we must let our love for one another, grounded in God's love, become evident in our lives. How we, how we talk with one another, how we raise our families, husbands and wives, how you, how you handle your marriages, um, parents, how you, how you raise your children, um, everyone, if you have a job, how you work your job, students, if you go to school, all these different things, we must allow this love to be evident in our lives because it's only in our community here at Sovereign Way will that will shine as the greatest defense that God does exist, that the Father has sent the Son by the power of the Spirit to do what? To redeem a people from all the nations back to himself in perfect worship. That is the call that Paul calls the Galatians to serve one another in love. And that is the call that we have as witnesses of Jesus to go out into the world, to glorify him with our lives, but most importantly, to love others as he has first loved us. This is what Paul commands us to do. And if we, choose, and if we don't take this heed seriously, then consider this warning that Paul gives in the next verse. He actually gives a warning on if we choose not to pursue this path of love towards others and to our neighbor. He says in Galatians 5.15, look there where he says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. And so before Paul moves on to the second and final reason, he gives a subtle warning here to the Galatians. He commands them to watch out. But for what? Well, to not bite and devour one another so that they are not consumed by one another. And just to clarify, Paul is not um, telling the Galatians to watch out because they're eating each other. It's it's not cannibalism here, right? That's not what Paul is getting at. He's speaking hyperbolically here. He's being super exaggerative here. He's really providing an illustration, and the illustration is this idea of animals tearing each other apart, biting, devouring each other, consuming each other. And I'm not sure if you've ever seen like a dog fight in person where dogs are in a scrap battle, biting each other, growling, yelling, ripping skin apart. It's actually, it's, it's a very ugly and violent picture. I don't, I don't recommend you look it up on YouTube, but I bring it up because that's exactly Paul's point. Many scholars believe that Paul is warning the Galatians here about their disagreement about the Judaizers' message. What people believe here is that the, that the Galatians, they were not all on the same page. Some thought that, oh, yeah, we should become Jews so that we can become God's people. Whereas on the other side, like, no, we're saved by faith in Christ alone. What are you guys doing? And so there's this disagreement. There is this battle. And what Paul is warning them about is that be careful that as you handle this situation amongst yourselves, that ultimately out of a, out of a motive for love. That you're not trying to get the best of one another or like, oh, look how much I know. Or like, man, you're dumb because you believe in this. None of that. He says, as you deal with this, 
Remember the love that God has first shown you, the grace, the kindness, the love, the patience. This is the same love you must show to your brothers and sisters as you deal with this situation. And the reason why Paul brings this up, because there may have, because they, they were probably most likely not doing that. The fact that he has to warn them to don't bite, don't devour, and how, you, how, you, how they um, interact with this, the fact that Paul had to remind them about this shows them that they were in danger of doing these things. And the reason why that's so significant for us to think about, loved ones, is because people look at the church at times, and although the church is called to be this place that we love one another, we are, we are for the truth, we speak the truth in love, preaching the gospel, making disciples, showing compassion, people at times could look at the church and be like, that is the last place where I would ever assume to see such a lifestyle. Because when I look at the Christian, because when many people in our culture look at the church by and large, whether it be in social media or, or whatever, they sometimes see Christians as the most condemning people, the most exclusive, the most divisive, and the most intolerant people. And historically, they have some decent ground. They look at, well, look at, look at what the church has supported all these years. You've got the Crusades, look at slavery that existed in the South and our own country. And people would even argue, I know so many non-Christians who appear to be more compassionate, more moral than Christianity. And so if Christianity is the one and true religion that should love others as God has first loved them, how can, they, how can it reconcile with the lousy record of Christians throughout history? It seems like the church of Jesus Christ does nothing but bite and devour one another because of their selfish passions, ultimately consuming one another. And I'm not going to deny that because it, it does happen. But ultimately, the solution is not to get rid of Christianity or to deconstruct. or like, eh, Christianity, that's, that's, that's for weak-minded people. I'm not, I'm not going to waste my time with that. That's not the answer because you're not looking at the source of what Christianity is all about. The solution is not a lesser form of Christianity, but a deeper form of Christianity. What do I mean by that? I think the American abolitionist Frederick Douglass really, really helps us understand the distinction we need to keep here. If, if there's anyone here who struggles with that, or if you know anyone who struggles with this, this is a wonderful, helpful observation that Douglass makes for us. He says this about slavery um, in the South um, during the 1800s. He says, What I've said respecting against religion and I mean strictly to apply to the slaveholding religion of this land, and with no um, possible reference to Christianity proper, that is the Christianity of Christ and the Gospels, for between the Christianity of this land and America and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. He continues, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. And then he concludes, I love the pure, peaceable, impartial in Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. What is he doing there? He separates the hypocrisy of people from the true essence of what Christianity is when we look at the Gospels, when we look at Christ himself, and how we ought to live as Christians. If there's anyone here who is really offended by the hypocrisy of Christians, you're not alone because God is there with you. That is not how God calls his people to live. We're called to live by speaking the truth of the gospel, but ultimately out of a motive, out of love. But don't, but don't mix 
the hypocrisy of sinful men who need the gospel just like, just like you with what Christ calls them to be as we read in the gospels. It's keeping that distinction right that helps you to not get rid of Christianity altogether, but really to spit out the bones and to really deepen your understanding of what Christ calls us to live as we follow him. But that leads me to a question, though. In light of this, right, is there anything in your life, loved ones, that you bite and devour one another in your sin? consuming each other in the process. Because you can either love your neighbor, your fellow brother and sister, by denying yourself and loving them, or you can, like, now I'm going to do my own thing, and, you know, it just leads to ugliness from there. Because for the Christian, we should not be, we should not consider ourselves first more than others, but keeping in mind Christ's example, how did Christ live? Mark 10, 45 summarizes it. Jesus says himself, for the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then Paul the Apostle will later comment on that in Philippians chapter 2 by saying that, you know, consider others more significant than yourself. Serve others by loving them. Why? Because this is exactly what Christ has done when he added humanity to himself and ultimately humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Not that he had to, but he chose to because he ultimately loved you as his people. And so, so loved ones, if it's in your marriages, is there, is there anything in your life that you need to repent from that you're, that you're serving yourself and not the other for the sake of God? How about and how you raise your children? Or may, maybe if, if, you're, if you're a younger person, maybe your friend, your, your friend groups at school or at church, whatever may be the case, if you're, not ultimately living, if you're not ultimately living in a way of serving others in love, then you must repent of that and, help, and ask God to help you to do that each and every single day by reading the word, um, seeking accountability from brothers and sisters who can help you with this, who can help disciple you, so that you will function in a way by imitating not what the world tells you to be like, but ultimately imitating how Christ tells you how to live. And so Paul's first reason overall then is that, this, that the purpose of your salvation, the freedom that you have, is to love as Christ first loves you. You cannot love this way by your own power and wisdom, though, and it's with this in mind that it leads us to the second and final point tonight, which is this. That the power to love like Christ is only by the Spirit. The power to love like Christ is only by the Spirit. So look at Galatians 5.16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so a lot of everything that Paul has been talking about regarding this, your purpose of salvation, he then moves on to say to walk by the Spirit. Only then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But what does Paul mean by this? What does he mean by walking in the Spirit? Well, that word for walking, it's an action word, it's actually another one of those Jewish idioms of just really meaning conducting your life or living day to day, moment by moment, one day at a time. And in the context of a Jew at that point, they would talk this way because they wanted to walk in obedience to God's word, to his law. They wanted to, as God gave them instructions of how they ought to live in his word, they wanted to do their best to order their steps to ultimately pursue God, to imitate God in holiness. Paul talks like this about the Christian life. If you, if you read earlier in Galatians 5.7, he talks about how, how the Christian life is like a race, you're running, it's not a short, short sprint, it's, it's a marathon, it, it, it's, a, it's a long process. Or how I like to talk about the Christian life, it's really a journey. It's a journey from this broken, evil age to the next when, when God re restore this world anew in him. 
These are just different illustrations of how we talk about the Christian life. It's a walk, it's, it's, it's a long marathon, it's a journey. Keeping that in mind, however, what does he mean when he connects that idea of walking, which is, a, which is a, uh, an analogy for the Christian life, how is that connected and what does it mean when it's connected to the word spirit? Well, Paul has, has, has been saying a lot about the spirit up until this point. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 to 5, he says to the Galatians, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? And, and then he continues, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh, by your strength, by your power? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplied the Spirit to you, that's God, and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith. In other words, how does one receive the Spirit? Or how does one walk by the Spirit? He says in Galatians 4, 4-7, there's another passage to keep in mind before I give the answer. He says, but the fullness of time had come. God sent forth the Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so that you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What does it mean for a Christian to walk by the Spirit? It's by faith. It's by faith in Jesus. That is how we ultimately walk by the Spirit without getting too technical. It's by your faith because it's only by faith in Jesus that you're born again. It's only by your faith in Jesus that you're born again, you receive the Holy Spirit, and then therefore you're born again to live this life that now you're able to live for God. Where before you had the Spirit, you couldn't obey God. It was, you, didn't have, you couldn't do it. You were dead. Nor, nor could you want to. It's impossible. But because of your faith in Jesus, the Spirit gives you a new heart, you're born again, and now you're able to live for God. But how do we grow in this, right? If it's by faith in Jesus... How do we walk by the Spirit each and every single day? Because it's a continual process, and it's by knowing God more. And it's only by knowing God more that you will grow in your love of God. And it's the more you love God, the more you want to obey Him. Not because you want to, but because, or sorry, not because you have to, but because you want to. And the more you obey Him, the more He will manifest Himself in your life. And so how do you grow in your knowledge of God to allow all that to happen? Well, it's by, it's by building yourself up in your faith, or in other words, it's by being in the Word. That is how we know God. It's by, it's by depending upon God through prayer, that is how we grow in our knowledge of God. It's by doing church life with your church family, of not only discussing the scriptures at church, but as you go into the life, helping each other to, to push each other to, to Christ like this. It's by all these things that it's that, this is how I know God more. And it's by knowing God more that you can only love him more, leading to obedience and all that. And it's to kind of give a very helpful illustration about this. Um, this maybe you've heard of this illustration illustrated this way before, but I, I like illustrating it this way. But think of God's word really as his love letter to you. And now I don't, I don't want to sound too sentimental. Um, follow me here. What I mean by that is that think about if you, if you ever wrote a love letter to um, say someone that you liked or maybe your spouse when you're dating them. If you're younger, you probably, uh, if, if there's any younger people here, you're probably like, man, what the heck is a letter, John? I never even heard of that in my life. If, you know, think about that. Think about how you text your, um, your crush and put all the heart emojis and the kissy things. That would be like the equivalent of a, of a letter maybe in today's generation. 
Bottom line, why did you write those letters? Because you wanted to know that person, right? And when you wrote those letters or maybe read them, did you treat them with the same care as you did with your friends or maybe family? No, you were careful to read every single word in that letter, like, oh, what did she say? Or, oh, i got to pour my heart, pour my heart out as I write this letter to, to my beloved, right? Just, just that type of um, um, focus, right? Now think about this in light of that. That's, that's, in a sense, what God has done to us. Not that God had to reveal himself to us through his word, but he chose to. He wanted to be in relationship with his people. Not that he needed us, but he would be so much more glorified if he did. And by him revealing himself to us, we get in a a sense that love that he has for us, right? And so that's why it's worth pursuing to to read the word because, wow, God is so mindful of me that he wants to reveal himself to me. That's that's amazing. That's, That's crazy. But what's even more interesting is running with the same analogy of wanting to know God more. Say if you um, have a friend, a married couple, and you're talking to the husband, and he says, oh, I love my wife, I do anything for my wife, I'm always there for her. But then you realize he never takes time to hang out with his wife. Does that, does that person really love his wife at the end of the day? No, right? How much more for a Christian who says they love God, they are, they're all about God, but they never take time to get to know God. They never take time to get to know God through his word, to deepen their understanding of him, because it's only by knowing God through his word that grows you in your love of God. And it's by doing that, loved ones, that that's how you walk by the Spirit, by faith, each and every single day. Because you have faith in Jesus, it's by reading your word, you know God better, that you want to love him, leading to you want to obey him. And the only reason why you're able to do that, not because it's by your own strength, but because of your faith in Jesus, not dependent upon your own strength, you're depending upon the spirit strength overall to get you through it all. This isn't an, an experiential feeling that we just have that's all mysterious, right? It's a reality grounded in the hope of the gospel through the instruction of what God has said in his word. Because you are set free from sin and death, you are empowered to obey God and to love others due to the spirit that is in you. The prophet Jeremiah prophesies that God will write his law on, on your heart. The prophet Ezekiel prophesies that he will cleanse you and give you a new heart to obey God. And as Pastor Josh preached a little bit ago, the prophet Joel prophesies that God will pour out his spirit on all the people who believe in him so that you will carry out his will. And all this was fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus Christ when the church was born and the rest is history. It's not a matter of praying for the spirit. If you believe in Jesus, you already have the spirit. It's allowing the Spirit already in you daily to empower you as you walk by faith to live out God's commands out of love. And how do we ultimately do that? By studying his word. That's how we know God. And it's only when you walk in the Spirit in this manner that Paul says, if you look at at the Bible, um, that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. He says in verse 16. It's only when you walk in the Spirit in this way that you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That word desire, what does that mean? Well, it's actually a, a neutral term. It can mean it can be good or bad, but in this, but the context is always key. Context is always key to understand what the scriptures are saying. And in verse 16 here, it's being used in a negative connotation. That's why English Bible translate um, English your English Bible translate translated as maybe desire, lust, cravings, or maybe a longing for something. And so this idea of the desire of the flesh, then it really refers to this whole nature of fallen man desiring, really, to be self-autonomous from God. That's what the desire of the flesh is, to, to do their own thing, to, to, to live a life apart from God's sovereign rule. And as a result, it takes various appetites. 
You can satisfy them in, even in good gifts at times, in creation, um, turning them into false idols such as sex, entertainment, food, sports, comfort, drugs, happiness, peace, you name it, right? This, it's, it's our flesh that even takes the good things in creation, turns them into a God, because we worship these things more than the God you were ultimately made to worship. Because at the end of the day, people are worshipers. Even the atheists, we all worship because God has made us to worship him. But again, because of sin, um, it, it really distorts our orders of how we order our, lo- our loves. And so humanity loves everything else first, but God, whom we were created to love first. And it's, with, it's, it's with, in light of that, right, that, that Paul then gives a reason why he says this in Galatians 5.17, that if that's the case of humanity again, why is that the case? We'll look at Galatians 5.17. He says that, well, for the desires of the flesh, they are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And so Paul gives a reason why you ought to walk by the spirit. Because the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and vice versa. Why? Well, he further explains, they are opposed to each other so that you cannot do whatever you want to do. And now there's some debate on how we should, how, how we should kind of think about this, and there's, I don't have enough time to get into it, but what I will say is that in light of the desires of the flesh and the, and the desires of the spirit, you can't have it both ways, loved ones. You can't satisfy your desires to live for the world and at the same time say, but I'm going to love for God as well. As Jesus says, you can only serve one master, you cannot serve one or the other. In other words, whatever you ultimately love at the end of the day, the flesh of the spirit, that is what you're ultimately going to serve. If you, if, if, if you t- take time to satisfy your desires of, you know, just like worshiping the world, you're going to love the world. But if you make that effort, like, you know, because, because of my faith in Jesus, I want to know God, I want to get deep in the scriptures, I want to know how to pray, I, I want to repent, I want to know how to read the Bible to apply it to my life, it is by doing that, replacing your sinful desires, that's what's ultimately going to help you to, 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 to really um, keep in step with the Spirit. Something that Augustine once says, and this might be very controversial, because at first glance it seems like, wow, Augustine, you actually said that. If you, if you understand why he's saying it, it makes a lot of sense what Paul is getting at here. Augustine, and I'm going to say this as an illustration, he once says this, that love God, do whatever you please. You might be like, Augustine said that? That's crazy, right? What does he mean by that? If you truly love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you can do whatever you please because you're ultimately going to, be, because you're ultimately going to love not the things of the world because God hates the things of the world, but you're ultimately going to live in such a way that is ultimately grounded in your love of God. That's kind of what Paul is getting at here, is that you can't have it both ways. You can't, um, you know, satisfy the desires of the flesh and the desires of, of the spirit. They're against one another, so you can't just do whatever you want, right? If you, if you serve the flesh, it's going to be against the spirit. If you serve the spirit, it's going to be against the flesh. So how, how you ought to live? Again, it's whatever you love at the end of the day, that is what you're ultimately going to love. And as a Christian, you are called to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We were, we, we were, God reached out to us so that we would, so that we would worship him. And if you are an unbeliever, no matter what our culture says, that love is love, love is equal, you can do whatever you want. I'm sorry, you cannot love truly in this way unless you realize you cannot love. But that begs the question, how can you love? And it's by, again, be reminded of the gospel, of why God came to save us in the first place. 
Because as I've been alluding throughout this entire sermon, that God made everything perfect. God made everything good. He is the creator. Everything stems from him. And at the pinnacle of everything in the universe, you know what the pinnacle of creation was? It was humanity. He made humanity in his image to worship and to glorify God. And yet, what went wrong? If God made everything good, we don't live in a universe like that any, anymore, right? We live in a universe filled with death, filled with suffering, filled with evil. Well, Adam and Eve, the first human, human parents, our parents, they chose to do whatever seems right in their own eyes, rebel against God, become God in their own eyes, and therefore sin and death came into the world. And that's why we all experience brokenness, pain, and suffering. Not because of the sin of our parents, but because that same sin nature has been passed down, and so we do exactly what they did in the garden. As a result, the consequence of such sinning against the Creator God is death. Not just physical death, but more than that, eternal damnation in hell. That is what we deserve. We don't deserve everlasting life because we, are, we have rebelled against the God who has made us to worship him. And that's the bad news, but there's good news. And the goodness of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his eternally begotten son, Jesus, so that all who believe in him by faith alone would not perish in hell for your sins, but you will have everlasting life. And that works because when Christ came down, he lived a perfect life, and he would ultimately die on the cross under the oppression of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago. Because he was the perfect God-man, when he died on that cross, he perfectly died in your place. The, the sins that condemn you to hell, he died in your place as a sinless substitute so that by your faith in Jesus, all the good things that he's done, he places it into your account so that when the Father looks at you, he says, you are no longer guilty, but you are innocent. You are right before me because my perfect, because my perfect son died in your place. And, and, and in exchange, Christ bears your sins. He dies on the cross, pays your sin debt in full, is buried three days later, rises again from the grave, conquering sin and death, proving that he was who he says he was, that he is the resurrected Lord. This is the gospel. And the whole reason, again, why God does that is not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And we ultimately see that by God sending his son Jesus, who gave himself up on the cross for you, out of his great love for you, to redeem you back to himself so that you can have this perfect relationship, this union with Jesus that you're created to have, which can only be satisfied in Jesus. So if there's anyone here who, who, who's been listening to me and you don't walk with Jesus, you don't follow me, you don't believe in him, I exhort you, you must be born again. You must repent of your sins, my friends, and you must place your faith in Jesus because there's no other name under heaven that says but the, but the name of the man, Christ Jesus. And so if you don't believe in Jesus, my friends, repent and believe in him. And if you have any other questions about that, I'm here afterwards to talk about that with you. But as we close, for everyone else, final verse, as we, sum, as we close it all off, Galatians 5.18, Paul closes this, um, this part portion of scripture. He says, but in light of all this, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if you're led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the curse of the law. Under, you're no longer a slave to sin. You are now free to love your neighbor through the Spirit by faith alone. And so just a final question then. Do you attempt to do the Lord's work the Lord's way by the power of the Spirit? Or do you try to do it by your own strength? Are you just more concerned about just doing the right thing to impress others, um, to kind of check off the box, box off, 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 your, off your daily to-do list? Or are you so concerned about your love for others Grounded in your love of God, that because of, uh, because of the love that God has first shown me, this is how I'm going to live my life. 
As, as um, Hosea 6.6 6 says, I, I came across this in my Bible reading the other day, just, just being reminded of this, Hosea 6.6 6 says that God desires steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Of course, God desires our worship. And in this, in, in this time period in Israel's history, yes, God did desire these sacrifices and burnt offerings, but he didn't like how they were offering these sacrifices. He desired steadfast love. He wanted their hearts. He didn't just want their service. He wanted their hearts. And what's interesting is that when we do have the right heart to serve God, then our service goes in line with our love to God, not because we have to. And so loved ones, just as we keep these things in mind, just as you go about your ministries, as you go about leading your families, as you go about living a life as a follower of Jesus, you can only love your neighbor. You can only love God ultimately by the power of the Holy Spirit. When we try to do it by our own strength, it is very dangerous because we can think, because we can deceive ourselves that we're doing the Lord's work in the Lord's way. But if we're not doing it by the Spirit, then we're not doing it the Lord's way at all. And so, loved ones, use your freedom that you have in Christ to love one another, to stir one another to love and good works, and to share the gospel with your neighbors so that you can help them to love God as well, so that they can help other people know God and love him as well. And again, for anyone here who doesn't know Christ, again, repent and believe in the gospel, because loved ones, it's only when we show the love to others in this way when we imitate God and his love in this way, that you will not only be imitating the God that saved you, but you'll ultimately um, serve him with all of your affections, just like he made you to worship. And so with all that in mind, let's go before our Lord in prayer, and we'll be getting ready for the Lord's Supper.